Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. Welcome back to Sprogcast, just in time for episode 20. Do you know, this episode seems to be mainly about what you breathe. We're interviewing Bex Boland from Global Action Plan about air pollution and pregnancy and Francine Bate from the Lullaby Trust. I'm Mark Harris, and here's Karen Hall. Hi, Mark. How are you? Do you know I'm all right? Okay. We're we're, rec- we're recording early this morning, Karen. Is it a bit early for you? Oh, it's, ten well, past I'm nine. Up, no, well, I'm up at six, usually, or even ten to six. Um, but I don't know. I feel like it's early. It's raining. It's cold, and my bedroom's a little bit cold. It's winter. I know. I know. I'm looking out the window. Um, on the edge of the village I live in, uh, at a cemetery. Nice. Yeah, grounds you. That's that's what it does. <laughs> so how are, you, how are you anyway? I'm getting over cold. Yeah, um, you and everyone else? Yeah, exactly. Yes, my boy was uh, trying to get off school this morning, Monday morning. <laughs> I don't feel very well. <laughs> my, my little boy wanted to go on Minecraft this morning, so we let him for five minutes. And he said... I think I'll go in at lunchtime tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Did you hear on the news this morning they were talking about uh, Microsoft trying to promote Minecraft into school as an educational tool, which was interesting. Well, the the depth of creativity involved in building in Minecraft blows my mind. I mean, my little boy's seven, you know, and he makes roller coasters, he makes farms. I mean, it's just amazing. If I ever go myself, it's not easy. I can't. It makes me nauseous, just the movement. I don't like it. I'm well, too old. <laughs> schools were, in a way, created for a, an industrialised society. Schools were developed based on a Prussian model, which was largely about soldiers and work fodder. Mm. And um, so, so schools, in a way, historically, have prepared people for a, an industrialised society. Truth of the matter is now we, we live in a post-industrialised society mm. where creativity and knowledge are the commodities that the market needs. Yeah. So you know, that's why things like the arts, things like you know, creative endeavours should be pushed in schools like MAD, along with things like Minecraft. So I'm all for it. Yeah, and I guess you know, learning to communicate in, in different ways is not going to be all about having meetings across tables for our kids, Absolutely. is it? Absolutely right. I mean, the older generation, I mean, I'm 52, you know, people in my generation are very quick to say um, social media, it's it's not real connections, you know, they're not real societies and all that kind of stuff. Well, the truth of the matter is that my youngest child is growing up in an era where people do find deep connection through social media. Well, you're talking to somebody who met the love of her life through social media and has been in a very happy relationship for 13 and a half years. So. Wow, lucky, <laughs> lucky Peter. Yeah, I did mean Pete, yes. Yeah, I was just checking. But you didn't have a Tinder account. No. Anyway, this, is, this should be a different episode, shouldn't it? To talk about technology and education and children well Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor Pinter and Martin an independent publishing company specializing in pregnancy birth and parenting psychology nutrition and yoga and they're at pinterandmartin.com that is right and we've also want to mention that we've set a date for for our next Sprogcast live which will be on April the 27th at Ephra Space again um, okay. and possibly another one later in the year perhaps in Leeds since my friend Fran has offered to host us up there um, okay. we are talking to guests at the moment and we've got quite a long wish list so um, let's see what happens watch this space yeah and I think if uh, anyone out there has someone in mind uh, drop us a line we'd love that and we'll do all that we can to um to make it happen do you know it's also worth saying if there's anyone out there that wants to be involved drop us a line we're always happy to hear from people that listen to the show month by month indeed and you know we had katie edwards the poet at the first one if anybody wants to perform we'd welcome your input um right we've got lots going on on twitter um and facebook at Genevieve82 on Twitter said, we're a favourite podcast. That makes me happy. Yeah. 
Jenny, oh. Jenny Neal listened for the first time and she seemed to like it. And we also had a shout out from Jenny the midwife. Is she at Jenny the mm on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> and hi to Robert Arthur Maxey on Facebook. And what does he say? He says, hi, Mark and Karen. Episode 18 is, in my opinion, the best episode of Sprogcast to date. Claire Goggin's story got everyone quite emotional at the Being the Change conference, which makes me happy she's been included within this episode. I also really enjoyed your little debate regarding the word gentle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did have a little debate. <laughs> we did. We did. Thanks, we, we were friends in the end. Always. <laughs> Usually because I concede. That's right. And if he doesn't concede, I just edit him out. That's so, the way. <laughs> um, we also want to mention birthrights. We're we're talking to them a moment at the moment about how we can sort of support them, um, support that charity and their important work. And we've got some information and suggestions from them, so we're going to be working on that. I think the first thing we should say is mention their website. Yeah, which is birthrights.org.uk. There's lots of um, stuff on there that you can uh, investigate, particularly the courses that they're running uh, for healthcare professionals in the context of the rights of women. So check that out. They're also still doing their fundraising book club. So if you want to get a copy of Rebecca Schiller's book, Why Human Rights and Childbirth Matter, invite a few friends around and make some cake and have a chat. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, that's not too much to ask, is it? No, and, and and in that series of books, uh, that's a standout book. And uh, in my opinion, it, it, every birth worker should get a copy. Yeah, definitely. That book is just stand out. It, it's an excellent book. So, what have we got in the news? Well, I I met Alison. Yeah, Alison Thewlis. I I spoke at a breastfeeding conference earlier in the year, and had the privilege of meeting her. Uh, I think it's a product of my age that she seemed very young. <laughs> there you go. Politicians are getting younger. And policemen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When did you last see a policeman? Uh, that's true. That's... <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a police officer, I meant to say. That's not what I meant. <laughs> uh, what did you mean? When did you last see one? There aren't any around here. You can't. That's a good even point. our local police station isn't. There's a building, and there's a phone, and there's a post box, but there are no people. You make a good point. You make a good point. I live in a village, so you know, don't don't see them often around here. No. I was impressed with um, Alison at the conference. She she, she was amazing, and uh, well, she she's introduced this bill, hasn't she? What's it? What's it? Tell us about it. Um, I've got it down as the feeding products for babies and children brackets advertising and promotion bill which she says will better support all parents in the infant feeding choices they make for their children sure and she makes quite uh, I mean I I listened to her speech in the House of Commons and the emphasis seemed to be on uh, follow-on milks yeah like the like the the formula companies had kind of um, realized that they 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 weren't getting much leverage with you know initial milk products and are now uh, applying their trade. Oh dear, that's well. The the thing about the follow-on milks is, of course, that they they cannot advertise first infant milk. Yeah, that's and the therefore point. these other products exist. For anyone yeah. who wants to find out more about this, the best resource I think is the First Steps Nutrition Trust, which is FirstStepsNutrition.org. Right. Uh, they do some really, really good information on different kinds of milk, but also it's a useful one for um, stuff on eating during pregnancy and things like that, and oh. children's diets and things as well. Really, really good website. That's a good shout out. I, I, I think the thing about advertising and promotion of follow-on milks is, is just the the very uh, clever way in in which uh, formula companies package the information that they you know put on tv and all that kind of stuff in such a way as to point in a different direction you know it's all about follow-on milks but yeah yeah it's very clever but it uses Uh, words like phrases like when you move on from breastfeeding yeah exactly yeah and in in the speech that she gave in the house of commons she mentions all kinds of concerns about sugar content in these products mm-hmm. uh, about claims that this is the best way um to move on um from breast milk 
and that these formulas, you know, are the best way for your child to develop. And when, you know, a healthy diet uh, and weaning, moving on from breast milk, gives a baby all that that it needs, really. That's right. People, um, when I'm doing an introducing solids workshop, for example, will be under the impression that they must give this stuff. Yeah. Um, they must give this stuff at six months and, and because things like toddler milk exist that they must continue to give this stuff and in fact if, if a baby is not breastfed then at six months they can continue to have first infant formula that's the most appropriate um, food for them still developmentally and nutritionally and there's, once they reach the age of one there's no need for them to have formula at all yeah it, it's another example of master communicators shaping the narrative yeah. So, so that in the minds of people, again, at, you know, an unconscious level as, as much as a conscious level, the assumption is that these things are needed. You know, it's it's a company that has a bottom line and shareholders creating a need where there isn't one in order to generate revenue. Right. And I you, think that that's where Alison Thewlis is coming from, isn't it? That she wants government to ensure that parents are accurately informed um, yeah. You used the word insidious and asked me to edit it, but you know no. I'm not sure you were far off the mark. You know, we live, some people are telling us, in a post-truth generation. I'm not sure I love that phrase. Well, I think we could call it, lies it, lies, can't we? It's in the dictionary now. All right. It's the word of the year this year. I'm still going to say lie when it's a post, lie. Post-truth. Well, I think it's pointing to something even beyond lies. It's kind of like... It's it's where the the evidence isn't as isn't as important as the narrative that you create to achieve your objective. I think that's intellectualising lies. Yeah, all right then, lies. <laughs> all right. We should also give a shout out to our own episode fourteen on infant feeding and the future of public health, in which we interviewed yeah. um, both Heather Tricky and Maureen Minchin. So that's very relevant to this very news. Very 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 relevant indeed. Yep. And we had some other really interesting um, news um, that came out during the week about sudden infant death. But I wonder if it would be good to listen to your interview with Francine first. Yeah, let's do that. So this is Francine Bape, Chief Executive Officer of the Lullaby Trust. My name is Francine Bates. I'm the Chief Executive of the Lullaby Trust. The Lullaby Trust was founded way back in 1971, and originally we were called the Foundation for the Study of Infant Deaths. We changed our name to the Lullaby Trust in 2013. The charity was founded in response to what was then a huge epidemic in the number of babies who died suddenly and unexpectedly for no apparent reason. And the charity was set up primarily to raise money to fund research to understand why, sadly, babies would, were dying in this way, but very quickly also became a support charity for those uh, bereaved families who had lost a baby. Since 1971, we have made uh, a lot of progress in reducing the numbers of sudden unexpected infant deaths, now called sudden infant death syndrome, but we still have some way to go. And currently, our charity is very focused on trying to support women stop smoking in pregnancy because we now know that smoking pregnancy is is the biggest risk factor in relation to SIDS. So our work now is very much focused on getting our message out to those women who are smoking pregnancy, but also um, exposing their babies to secondhand smoke. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, over the 20 years I've been a midwife, Francine, Mm. I've looked after been involved with lots of women who smoke and um Mm. you know these women would not be drinking alcohol they wouldn't be eating soft cheese but they would struggle desperately Mm. to give up smoking and there there seems to be a bit of a physiological phenomenon that goes on when a woman's pregnant that makes it even more difficult to stop smoking i i think that may be true but 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 the good news is that the numbers of women smoking at the time of the delivery of their baby is, is lower than it's ever been. We've, we have got it down to um, around 11% of mothers who are 
are now recorded as smoking uh, at the time of delivery. And that, that is an extraordinary success rate. However, it varies enormously around the country. So in some areas, um, it's the numbers of women smoking in pregnancy is, is as low as 2%. But in other areas, tending to be in more disadvantaged parts of, of the country, you can see very high rates of smoking pregnancy, particularly amongst young women, of, of up to 26%. So there is there is still a, a, a long way to go, but th there is no doubt that the messages are getting through now that smoking in pregnancy, exposing a baby, young children to secondhand smoke is a, is a bad thing. Although the evidence around nicotine and pregnancy, uh, in terms of the quantities a woman gets through smoking mm. is probably mm. not not clear. We, we know that the combustible elements of the cigarette are what cause the problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's one cigarette contains something like two thousand toxic chemicals, uh, and we 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 know that it's the 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 combination of of the smoke the, and the um, carbon monoxide. Is, is, is produced as a result that, that has a on the baby's health. It isn't per se that is damaging, but it's all the other things that go into the fact that, that yeah. causes the problem. I mean, the, the carbon dioxide binds to the haemoglobin, doesn't it, which reduces the amount of oxygenation a baby gets. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's something that, you know, we can't really pussyfoot around. No. That carbon monoxide is a poison. Yes. Um, and basically, it's a poison that gets into your blood system. It gets into the baby's blood system through the placenta, uh, and uh, it, it, it's very harmful and and does reduce the amount of oxygen that goes to your brain. So, the, the, these are facts that we need to to get across. Not not in a judgmental way. As I said, it will give up something that you're addicted to, and often a lot of the, the, the women that we're talking about are, are having difficult time and that they, they, there may be a number of other issues that they're, they're experiencing, which, which, which makes it hard for them to, to keep smoking. But, but the fact is that we do need to be upfront with uh, mothers and, and, and indeed their partners and tell them that if they do continue to smoke in pregnancy, expose the baby to smoke once it's born, then you know they're not giving they're not giving their baby the best chance in life, um, and in fact, in some cases, the baby may not even make it. Uh, and we're all aware of the statistics in relation to miscarriage and stillbirth and low birth weight. So, so it, it's really important that we get across that smoking pregnancy means that you know there is an increased risk that your baby certainly may be born um, at below average birth weight, but also may have a number of health problems. I mean, in the light of all that you were saying, Francine, it does it does perplex me. Now, I, I spend a lot of time amongst birth workers and there isn't much talk about e-cigarettes. Now, given what we do know about e-cigarettes in terms of the potential for reducing harm in the context of smoking by about 98%. Yeah. You know, and we also know that, I think there's a new study that suggests that vaping has all has a zero impact on air quality. Yeah. Um, we, we know about the perception issues around smoke, uh, around vaping around or using e-cigarettes around children. And that's maybe a debate for another day. But but given all the advantages mm. over smoking that e-cigarettes uh, offer us and to a woman who's addicted to nicotine, it does surprise me that until very recently there hasn't been a lot of talk about it within the birth world. Uh, well, I think that, that, that there is beginning to be a much sort of wider debate about the use of electronic cigarettes as the evidence comes through. Uh, and, and, and clearly we have um, begun to see reviews carried out and, and, and Public Health England themselves have um, put out their own uh, review and, and, and statement. I am co-chair of um, a consortium of organisations called the Smoking Pregnancy Challenge Group. And uh, this is a consortium of charities, uh, professional bodies, including Royal College of Midwives, Royal College of GPs uh, and, and academics. And over the last few years, we, we've been trying to drive up awareness about the 
the dangers of smoking pregnancy, but also look at the evidence in terms of how we can support women quit smoking in pregnancy. Uh, and as part of that, the, 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 the group has, has looked at the use of uh, electronic cigarettes in pregnancy. And we have, in fact, very recently produced a guide for midwives and other healthcare professionals, which is quite simple um, and clear, uh, setting out you know, basic Q&As as well as background information on, on the research. And I know my colleagues uh, took this briefing up to the Royal College of Midwives conference recently and, and literally all the copies went within within hours um, because there's a thirst for information. Yeah. And um, what we're trying to do is put out the facts as we currently know them and also to some extent alleviate fears because I think there is a concern that um, we still don't know whether the use of electronic cigarettes in pregnancy over the long term would have any any harm. But but we do know certain things. So, for example, we know there's no carbon monoxide in an electronic cigarette. There's only um, vapour enabling you to in inhale nicotine. And we know that nicotine, compared to the other toxic substances in a cigarette, it, it is much less harmful. We also know that, um, it, that the use of electronic cigarettes it, it, it is being used as a key tool in helping people uh, quit smoking altogether, but also reduce uh, their intake of, of cigarettes. So electronic cigarettes have got a lot, lot going for them. Yeah. Um, and I mean, our view would certainly be uh, find out as much information as you can about electronic cigarettes. And, and we're part of, of the consortium of organisations trying to get that information out along with Public Health England. Uh, but also um, accept that actually... An electronic cigarette, in, and there is there is there is an argument saying we shouldn't even be calling them cigarettes. No, that's why I refer to vaping, really. Yeah, so vaping is so much safer than um, than smoking uh, one cigarette, uh, and that's the message we need to get out. Now, obviously, in an ideal world, you you don't want people. Um, vaping nicotine either but the harm for you and your baby is is so much less that uh, if you really can't do without your nicotine uh, habit then switch to electronic cigarettes it's better it is better for you and your baby um, as opposed to smoking uh, an actual cigarette so that is that that is the line that, that that we take and that and that and that's born out of obviously the research and evidence that's out there but also because we know how harmful cigarette smoke is to the unborn baby and also to to a, a newborn vulnerable baby uh, if if they're being exposed to secondhand smoke and our aim is to to reduce infant mortality if we could halve the numbers of babies who die suddenly and unexpectedly as a result of SIDS if uh, we could prevent or support women to stop smoking pregnancy that, that that's a very big number as far as we're concerned yeah so for us the key must be uh, to tackle smoking in pregnancy not by um, stigmatising women who are smoking in pregnancy, that doesn't help at all, but by giving them information and tools that, that, that help, them, help them quit. It's also worth saying that stop smoking services, uh, specialist stop smoking services that are primarily set up for women who smoke in pregnancy are very, very helpful. And those services have been evaluated. It's quite clear that women who are referred to specialist stop smoking services have a much higher chance of, of quitting in pregnancy and also uh, continuing to um, be smoke-free once the baby's born. Uh, so, you know, the electronic cigarette or, or, or vaping, if you like, is just one tool in the toolbox, uh, but it is a very significant tool and, and we shouldn't be dismissing it. Uh, we, we should see it as a real aid to, to supporting people who don't want to be smoking but are addicted to smoking and need, need help to give up yeah i mean given that at the moment my understanding is is the most successful method out there uh, would be vaping and and in many cases of course costing the nhs zero yes yes they are currently uh, bought 
um, privately. Now, of course, um, we do know that pregnant women can be prescribed licensed nicotine replacement products, i.e. gum and, and patches. Um, and if you, com you combine that with support to help you quit smoking, then there's no doubt that that has a significant impact on the, on the numbers of women who give up. Um, and nicotine replacement therapy is free on prescription. So potentially we may get to a situation uh, and more research needs to be done whereby electronic cigarettes will eventually be prescribed um, as, as, as a form of therapy. We're not there yet. Um, as, as I understand it, we're quite close to getting electronic cigarettes or certain types of electronic cigarettes um, um, regulated and that and therefore they could eventually be added to the range of uh, different therapies that, that are available we're not we haven't got to that point yet but it, I, I can see that, that that's not too far down the track because the evidence is really stacking up now that vaping is is a really good way of of reducing dependency on cigarettes and and, and, our, and I get back to our key point is that vaping actually is so much much safer than than having having a cigarette yeah my friends at public health england they said say they have a mantra vaping is not smoking i think that's absolutely right that's the message we've got to get a, a, across i mean having said all that we still don't know the long-term effects of vaping and we have to be um, we have to be careful uh, about anything we, we we kind of recommend but the like you say the evidence is is stacking up in the context of it being far more safe than smoking and and particularly as as the baby grows you know and as uh, partners who smoke who are holding babies having smoked you know all of these things have profound implications they do and and, and that's one of the reasons that the lullaby trust we we, we uh, say very clearly to parents they shouldn't be co-sleeping if they also smoke um, because we know the the, the numbers of, of, of deaths sadly significantly increase in, in those situations. Now, why that is, we, we still don't know. It could be because the baby's health was compromised anyway uh, in relation to uh, the fact that a mother may have smoked while the baby was in the womb. It could be that baby's constantly exposed to secondhand smoke. It, it, it could it could be that um, the parents are trying to keep the house smoke-free and a are smoking um, outside the house. And that's certainly a tactic that we know that a lot of families who are still smoking uh, are, are using. But the problem is we do not know what the impact is of smoke that clings to your clothes and to your hair and to your face and to your hands. When I was in the community working, you know, our recommendation was that if you're going to smoke, you know, you go outside, you wear a smoking coat, you, yes. you come in, you, you maybe wash your hands, brush your teeth, and you avoid being in direct contact with the baby for mm. up to about 40 minutes. Mm, that's pretty strict. Now, as I say, we still don't know the mechanisms. We still don't know why a baby doesn't wake up um, when it's been asleep. Um, but we, what we do know from all the epidemiological research that we've done is that there's more likelihood of your baby dying of SIDS if you've been smoking. And so that's the reason why we've got to re continue to be aware of, of, of the dangers and, and continue to find ways to help women and, and their partners give up. Well, you, you were involved with the production of that information uh, leaflet. We posted it on our our page it's excellent i think it really is uh, uh, and um, we've had really fantastic feedback from um midwives and other healthcare professionals birth professionals because i think it sort of sets out you know where we are in terms of research uh, and 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 what the risks are and i think people reading this i hope people reading this will feel take a little bit more comfort uh, in terms of being able to say, if it's a choice between a fag or, or vaping, vape every time. I think because health professionals want to maximise people's health, they're, they're always a bit worried about recommending anything that, you know, still could, could you know, be um, a problem for, for people's health. I mean, addiction to nicotine isn't the best thing in the world. But, but on the other hand, um, addiction to cigarettes with all the toxins that they include um it is really so bad that the vaping alternative 
I think is something we all should be comfortable about recommending to um, a mother or, or a father who are struggling with, with, with smoking. Yeah, I'm with you on that. What, what, are, what are the numbers around uh, SIDS deaths in the UK at the moment? And I know you have some goals around that. When the organisation was set up, it was something like five, six babies a day. Wow. Um, and that was in, did you say 1965? 1971. It's now four babies a week. Uh, now, that's still four babies too many. Uh, but 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 in those days, we're talking about thousands of deaths every year. And now we're talking hundreds. And the uh, Office of National Statistics produced the figures for 2014 this August. And across the UK, we're, we're down to 230 deaths um, across the UK. And that is that 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 is the lowest ever number for for cop deaths uh, since records began so 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 that that's obviously very very pleasing for us and we're really delighted however we're an organization that's got an ambitious goal which is to reduce that number to below 150 to by 2020 so we've got a little bit of, of a way to go um our, our our infant mortality rates generally are they're not the they're not the highest in 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 Western Europe, but they they they're not the lowest. That's for sure. And we we need to do do more on certainly post neonatal mortality. Uh, we're we're cracking on. We're trying to reduce stillbirth and neonatal death. And again, we've seen drops. Uh, so so infant mortality rate in this country is is the lowest it's ever been, which is good. But the problem is, Mark, if I can be frank, it's primarily, certainly in terms of SIDS, it's babies from the poorest communities, from the most disadvantaged families who are now dying. And so for us, it's become a real big health inequality issue. Um, in the old days, before we knew about safer sleep and putting babies on their back, the, the babies that died died more evenly, if you like, across the social spectrum. That, 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 that has changed. Since, since we know more about how to reduce the risk of SIDS, so now the deaths are concentrated. 75% of the deaths occur in the lowest socioeconomic groups, uh, particularly amongst young women. So if you're under the age of 20, you've got a four times greater chance of, um, of losing a baby to SIDS. So, you know, there is a lot more work we need to do, but we need to target our message to, to those communities to reduce hazardous uh, infant care practice. But in the meantime, there are 600, 700,000 babies born every, every year, which is a joyous thing. And we still need to keep telling parents the basic rules about safer sleep. And that's what we will continue to do. Uh, but ultimately, if every, if every family followed the safe sleep rules, which includes smoking in pregnancy and exposing a baby to smoke once it's born, then we would see a dramatic drop in the numbers of deaths. Um, in that post-neonatal stage. So we're, we're still very committed to, to, to getting the, the, the rate down as far as we can. Um, but we, what I would say is we need the help of birth professionals to do that. Yeah, how, how, can, they, how can they get involved uh, in a way that would be supportive of the work that you're doing? Well, um, of course, you know, we would really be happy for professionals to uh, contact us. We've got an informative website. We've got a lot of free literature that um, they can um, access both on the website through downloading or we'd be happy to send a few leaflets out to anybody who'd like to see them. Um, so that they can inform themselves, but also give a basic information to um, the, the parents that they're, they're working with. Um, and I think, you know, it's worth saying that, you know, in those first few hours of, of a birth, the birth of a baby, which is a, a magical time, as we know, that's when parents are often at their most receptive in terms of the key messages. Um, so whether it's you know, smoking pregnancy, whether it's putting a baby on its back, whether it's breastfeeding. There are some key things that, you know, if you can establish at that very uh, you know, early moment that stick in that stick in a parent's mind, um, which are, are, are quite crucial, uh, which could could potentially 
save a baby's life uh, going forward and, and, and obviously, you know, prevent a lot of heartache. So don't underestimate how important birth professionals are in those first few hours in terms of getting across the safe sleep messages. And if, and if people aren't clear what they are, do contact us. Look at our website. We'd be more than happy to to talk them through with you. I'm sure most of your your um, your followers or your your listeners will be more than aware of safer sleep advice. But if you need any uh, more information, you want us to get the latest evidence, then just contact us. Lovely. Well, we've posted uh, your details to the to the page, and uh, we're very grateful. Great, thank you for the time you've taken today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. Have Bye. a great day. Bye. That was really interesting, and it also um, was timely in that there was some news which came out on Wednesday. I'm looking at a Guardian article entitled Sudden Infant Death Syndrome Research Breakthrough Suggests Biological Factor, where yeah. scientists have found lower levels of a certain protein in the brain of babies who died from SIDS, um, yeah. which is really fascinating for us in our work because there has never been any um, clear causal sort of theory that's come out before has there yeah i'm a little bit suspicious of it as is my want you know believe nothing test Good. everything okay tell me about your suspicions even in the guardian review of that that work you know it it raises other questions you know which all good research constantly does it's a small group it's it is it looks at but well, it says more than 27 SIDS cases and I us usually assume that more than 27 means 28 and <laughs> 19 controls and it is very yeah. hard to do this kind of research particularly now that the rates of SIDS are actually very very low yeah you've got to find a lot of babies to study yeah which is incredible harking back to Francine's in interview that the, the, the impact that the information and education has had on on the rates of SIDS is quite profound. And, and harking back to the interview, I, I found it distressing that early on, you know, pre-Anne Diamond days, SIDS was kind of distributed across social demographs. Yeah. Whereas, whereas now it's very much um, an inequality issue. I do wonder, though, if we'll see a change in that because of um, the current fad for, um, and I wonder if fad's a bit of an unfair word, but there are an awful lot of devices being used at the moment, things like, um, I'm not going to name any brands, but for a sort of um, nest-like thing for babies to sleep in, which has padded sides. Really? And people are using that in cots and in their own bed for babies to sleep in, and I just think you know if you we we mentioned this when we talked to Charlotte Russell from the sleep right. lab um back in an early episode and she said well common sense suggests that if it's got soft sides then there is a potential smothering risk there but her biggest concern was the way it kind of formed a little physical barrier between the mother and the baby yeah i i, I wasn't aware of that because that seems to cut right across the basic information around avoiding SIDS, doesn't it? It does. And the thing is, as she pointed out, until there's an incident, there won't be any research. But yeah. you've got to apply logic. Yeah. There is a 20% differential between their control and the investigated group, um, which does appear significant. And the substance itself um, has been studied in adults that suffer sleep disorders. Mm. So they're, they're, it, it is an area that needs investigating but the article in the guardian talks about we're a long way from a blood test that you can screen a child with and those kind of um outcomes concern me you know you know because i i would say there's rarely if ever one factor when it comes to these kinds of issues and and it's almost like a presupposition about how we study them you know, what kind of research methodology we use, it leads to this hope that there will be one solution. Yeah. You know, the idea that if we, oh, if it is that. Can we reduce risk to zero? Yeah, exactly. It's a zero risk phenomena. And it's kind of the randomized control trial methodology involves reducing variables. So you, you, you are studying in many ways one or two so-called causative factors or correlates at a time. And these things are rarely 
based on one causal factor. It, yeah. it, it's always going to be multifactorial, in my opinion. But interestingly, I suppose in this day and age, some of those variables have been reduced. And we know that because of the drop in yeah. sex rates. So there is um, yeah. less instance of babies sharing with adults who've been smoking um, yeah. and babies are not being put down on their front. So we've ruled out some of that stuff. Yeah, I, I yeah, no, I think you're right. On that note, shall we listen yeah. to Bex? Now she's on a slightly different topic, um, or more broadly looking at air pollution. Um yeah. and that was the original impetus for doing this episode. Yeah. And it was something that had never even occurred to me and I just really liked what she had to say. This is Bex Bolland from Global Action Plan. Hi, I'm Bex Bolland. Um, I'm Head of Air Quality at a charity called Global Action Plan. We're an environmental behaviour change charity. I've been around for about 23 years, um, helping people live more sustainably, whether they're um, at school, at work or in the community. Um, and my work around air quality um, has been developing over the last um, three or so years. And we've been mainly focusing in London um, to help people reduce their exposure to air pollution or reduce their contribution to air pollution. So that's me. Hi, thank you so much for talking to us today. And it sounds like you've got a really interesting project on the go at the moment that's relevant to um, the, the people listening. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really delighted to be here to share with yourself and your listeners. Um, it's really important that we're engaging with um, the people who are most at risk from air pollution and, and they include pregnant women and young children. What, what sort of risks are we talking about? So um, I'm not a health expert, I'm a behaviour change specialist, um, but um, there's a report um, that was published earlier this year from the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health, um, and that's called Every Breath um, We Take. Um, the lifelong impacts of air pollution and uh, it's a great resource and in there you'll see that there are a number of different health risks for um, fetal development and they include um, lung development, heart development, brain development um, and also um, the risk of low birth weight and uh, preterm birth associated with high air pollution so it's not an insignificant uh, factor. No, that's some really key stuff, isn't it? That's quite important then. Yeah, absolutely. And that then continues into early childhood. As children's lungs develop, they are affected by air pollution. So what um, we're really keen to ensure is that um, parents and pregnant women are aware of what they can do differently um, to make sure that they're giving their child the best, best start in life. Um, so that they can um, ensure the long-term health and well-being of their child. What, what does your project kind of, um, how does it help people do that? So it's really interesting. We've been um, working with a number of different um, health professionals around London. And we've been working with respiratory specialists, cardiac specialists. Um, we've been working with um, people in maternity units and having conversations about how we work best with children as well. And what we found is, even with the specialists in respiratory, for example, um, those clinicians or health professionals don't feel confident um, around air pollution. They don't really know how air pollution really affects their patients um, in such a fundamental way. And so what we've been doing is training up a number of different health professionals to then give advice to patients who are most at risk. Um, and what we found is that from the patient's perspective, they really trust their healthcare professional, which is fantastic. So rather than us as um, a charity that maybe these patients haven't heard of, giving them messages around um, air pollution and what they can do differently, um, they're hearing that from their, their health specialist. Um, and what's been really interesting is we've seen really huge increases in the confidence levels of these health professionals. And the patients themselves are really getting a, a much better um, experience that we hope that they'll um, go on to adopt these low pollution behaviours or low pollution exposure behaviours over the duration of their, their lifetime, particularly for, for those pregnant women and young children. So is it mainly GPs that you're engaging with at the moment? Uh, it's an interesting question. That actually, um, what we found is working with people who are having a change in life moment from a behaviour change perspective is much more likely to change their behavior over the longer term 
And also, we're finding that people who have more contact time with patients over a, um, a series of weeks or months are much more likely to have the time to have this kind of conversation. When it comes to GPs, their their time with the patients is ten, tends to be about 10 minutes. Mm. Um, so that's a really tight slot to try and give additional messaging on top of the health reason that the person's there, there for in the first place to then talk about this additional thing, air pollution, and whether it's relevant to that patient. So what we've been doing is in respiratory and cardiac, we've been working with rehabilitation teams um, to um, embed the air pollution messaging as part of their eight or 12 week course. So that actually they have a number of touch points um, throughout the care or service that they're they're receiving from their health professional. So they can have really good conversations and actually put into practice um, the low pollution exposure behaviors. And then in maternity, what we've been trying to begin to do is um, to embed that into um, the booking clinics um, and sessions that um, pregnant women experience with their um, maternity services. Right, so it's it's coming through a, a more of a midwifery route. Yes, to date, but that's just because we've been piloting um, these programs. So we've run about 20 programs overall, cross-spanning, air pollution, um, exposure reduction and air pollution reducing uh, behaviours across London. And we've just selected recently that the key thing, the key projects that really are working. And those are the ones in maternity, respiratory and cardiac in the in the change of life moment kind of area. Right. Okay. And what sort of things are, um, what what advice are the health professionals then passing on to um, pregnant women and mothers of young children? So it's a really um, new area, so much so that um, the epidemiologists who we rely on for their insights um, around this as the health specialists um, and the air pollution um, monitoring teams from um, QMUL, King's College London and Imperial, those teams have come together recently in a workshop that we ran with Public Health England to actually establish, okay, what are these key behaviours? So the main main ones that are floating to the top in terms of the ones that could um, reduce the most um, uh, air pollution exposure or have the greatest impact on health are taking uh, low pollution routes. So that would be if you've got a main road, really taking the road that's one road back from that that's more than 30 metres away, um, because generally speaking, um, the monitors that people have been wearing on the streets have been showing between a 20% and a 50% reduction in air pollution exposure, Um, and and specifically the high peaks in air pollution that you get from walking next to an idling bus or a taxi that's really a diesel-heavy um, kind of vehicle. So it's about avoiding exposing your lungs to those um, high polluting vehicles. Um, and um, what happens with those pollutants is some of them, the particles are so small that they actually go through the lung lining and into the bloodstream. And that's really what we're trying to avoid by by asking people to take low pollution routes. And that's just one of the behaviours. Right. If for whatever reason um, people can't take a low pollution route because they have to walk on the main road just by walking on the inside of the pavement they can reduce their their exposure to that pollution a bit more so they're just walking a bit further away from that exhaust pipe and that is um, I guess at the simplest level the most basic thing that people could do differently and including around that is really standing back from uh, if you're at um, a traffic light making sure that you're not right up against edge of the road of the pavement actually you're, you're keeping one or two meters back from that that crossing because again you'll probably be exposing yourself to less air pollution these are all such easy things to do they are they're super simple um i'm 36 weeks pregnant and um, at the moment so i know that trying to take a, a different route feels a bit of a huge ask at the moment because my body isn't that willing but knowing that i can you know, do things like walking on the inside of the pavement or keeping back from the traffic lights is is really um, empowering, I think, in terms of knowing that it's really simple, it's really easy, and these small changes can make a difference. The other behaviour that I think is really key for young parents is making sure that they are travelling outside of rush hour where possible. Um, we're 
really lucky in London to have this amazing re resource through the Air Quality London Air Quality Network. There are over 100 air pollution monitors stationed around London, and they've been there for years. So there's really good monitoring and really good modelling of what air pollution looks like in London specifically. And with that, um, it's been really clear that rush hour is a huge peak in air pollution. So if people can avoid traveling during rush hour, again, they're significantly reducing their, their exposure to air pollution. Um, and I think for um, people who don't have a nine to five job, um, particularly those who are on maternity leave or paternity leave, um, they can shift their, their day to make sure that they're, they're not exposing their child to the worst air pollution. Do you envisage a future where that would be something that's written into the kind of health and safety risk assessment that employers do when women get pregnant? It's a, that's a great question. And it's one that we're debating at the moment, whether the health and safety executive is one of the ways that we can um, tweak policy and tweak um, the way in which our society operates. I mean, ideally, we wouldn't have to do this exposure reduction behaviours anyway. We wouldn't have to avoid air pollution because we wouldn't create it in the first place. So um, it is really important that we also look at what we're doing around creating air pollution in the first place to make sure that we're not creating this weird environment where we yeah. have to have this regulation. Um, earlier this week, we had um, Client Earth in the courts um, battling against the government around um, the air pollution policies that have been put in place, um, highlighting that they haven't been going far, far enough. And actually, the High Courts um, went in Client Earth's favour, highlighting that the government, particularly the Treasury, hasn't invested enough to reduce air pollution in the UK cities. Um, so that's great. So hopefully we'll see more change there. Um, I know you wanted also to mention the National Clean Air Day next year. Yes. So um, so far, all of our work has been focused in London. Uh, most of the major cities around the UK are exceeding World Health Organization limits on nitrogen dioxide and particulate matter, which are two of the main pollutants you might hear about in the press. Um, so it isn't just London, it's Manchester, Birmingham, um, Leeds, even more cities than that. Mm -hmm. And what we're hoping to do next year is to run the first ever National Clean Air Day to raise awareness about the issue of air pollution, but crucially help people understand what they can do differently to reduce pollution, but also reduce their exposure to air pollution. So that is going to be on the 15th of June uh, 2017. Um, and if people want to know more about that, they can do a quick Google for National Clean Air Day or cleanairday.org and they'll, they'll be put through to our website. That's globalactionplan.org.uk um, or they could email us at cleanair at globalactionplan.org.uk or they could follow us on our Twitter feed, which is currently um, Clean Air for London. And that's spelt with the numerical four and London LDN. Okay, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Bex. It's um, been really nice to talk to you. Um, I'll put links to those things on our Facebook page as well so that people can find them easily. And um, I wish you luck with um, the project as it goes, but it sounds like you might be missing quite a lot of it. So I wish you luck with your with your yeah. baby as well. <laughs> Thank you ever so much. It's been fantastic to be here. And thanks ever so much, Karen, for, for having the opportunity to speak to your listeners. Um, so that that was Bex Bolland and um, an interesting subject that we hadn't really considered and um, hopefully we'll hear more from them at some point in the future. Let yeah. us know what you think. Give us a, a line, um, Facebook, Twitter, you know where to find us. Yeah, let us know. We, we crave feedback. Karen, because she's a solid professional me because i'm just insecure i thought you were going to say it the other way around <laughs> give me some feedback yeah, yeah um, <laughs> okay talking of feedback we should mention our ever supportive sponsor pinter and martin um yeah. two of their books dropped through my door this week one was why breastfeeding matters the next one in the why it matters series from charlotte young also known as the analytical armadillo um so any breastfeeding supporters out there will know of her and should read the book i say should i've not read it myself yet i must tell um i'm still in the middle of amy brown's book 
and um, I also received a copy of The State of Medicine by Margaret McCartney, and so that's newly out from Pinter and Martin. That one intrigues me. I'm, I'm not that the other one didn't. I should be reading that one too, and we'll probably review it in you know forthcoming uh, episodes. State of Medicine intrigues me. It's got a lovely uh, reproduction of the Nye Bevin statement about the founding of the nhs and to be quite honest reading that alone moved me well there you go if all goes to plan i will have margaret telling you about that in a minute's time so my name is margaret mccartney and i'm a general practitioner in glasgow and i write a column for the british medical journal which is free to access and i also broadcast for radio 4's inside health program the book that's just out this year is called the state of medicine keeping the promise of the nhs the reason why i wrote this book is because i'm absolutely despairing about the state of the nhs we have such committed staff on the whole the staff that work in the nhs have entered into it because they want to do something useful for other, for other human beings and they've entered into it with compassion and, and with a sense of vocation and I feel as though it's kind of beaten out of us and at the same time we have this huge financial crunch within the NHS and I'm really worried that we're not looking at the right way to solve this problem. We seem to be looking at all kinds of untested innovations are very likely to put more resources to the most healthy while ignoring the least healthy and the most likely to die. I think we're very likely to allow lots of private companies and private enterprise into the NHS while still not doing the core things that the NHS should be doing that is um, you know, helping people to live and to die well. Um, and I'm really worried that we're just going in the wrong direction and we're not looking at proper evidence-based medicine that would allow us to apply the founding principles of the NHS. And I, I'm really worried that the NHS will have ended before we've had a proper debate. And, and I'm hoping that this book and the ideas and the references and the, the research that I've called upon might make um, the people who are in charge of policymaking and um, perhaps think again about how we run things. Karen, endorsements. What have you been reading, Mark? Well, I, it's, it's it's under the heading endorsements in the little script that you sent yeah, me, Karen. Yeah. So it's, it's not really something I've been reading. It's something I did this week. Uh, I, I went on a two-day workshop as a participant uh, with the lovely Mia Scotland. I know she's a friend of the show. Uh, and she's a clinical psychologist who works particularly around birth trauma. She's a hypnobirther and a doula. Uh, and she she ran a two day course uh, on the rewind technique for trauma, particularly applied to birth. Uh, I went on that course and thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, a, a very uh, easily assimilated technique that can be used to support uh, someone who is experiencing. Um, I don't want to use the word trauma because the technique works on lots of different areas. So I went on that for two days, thoroughly enjoyed it, and that's my endorsement. Sounds good. She mentioned that briefly when we interviewed her, didn't she? Oh, she that did. Was in... ages ago. Oh, episode six. It was over a year ago. Yeah, I did that in her office, yeah. I remember doing the interview. It was lovely. Uh-huh. Okay, so Mia's website is yourbirthright.co.uk for anyone who's interested. Cool. What's yours? What, what are you reading? I'm still reading, as I mentioned, I'm still reading Amy Brown's book, Breastfeeding Uncovered, which I'm very much enjoying. It's kind of more in the camp of your kind of politics of breastfeeding, um, breastfeeding matters school of breastfeeding book rather than it's, it's still not that um, perfect textbook for parents and parents to be that I'm constantly seeking for since um, Heather Welford's brilliant book went yeah. out of print. So that still doesn't exist, Mark. And and maybe you should just write the book you want, Karen. <laughs> I'd love to. Well, well, that's that's the end for today. That went quick, Karen. It, it did. Uh, it did. Our next episode comes out on the twenty fifth of December. <laughs> yes, we carry on even in the midst of all your festivities. Uh, we'll have Dr. Wendy Jones on whether or not you should have that glass of wine with Christmas dinner if you're breastfeeding. And if you have any suggestions or comments, do get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. If there's any birth stories that involve stables and animals, we'd love those. <laughs> do you know who else is still working in the midst of all the festivities? Well, midwives will be. Midwives. The NCT breastfeeding line's open. Ah, good. So some good, of my good, colleagues good. will be out there. 
answering the phones on 0300 33 Yeah, and I suppose those people that answer the lines, answer those lines, can't drink. That's what right. If they, <laughs> if they do, they'll be getting some great breastfeeding advice. Do you know what? Some years I do a shift on the line after Christmas dinner <laughs> just to get away from the family. Now, where were we? Back to script. That's um, facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, why not leave us a review? Thank you for listening today. Um, we'll be back in December. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.